Thank you for coming to the podcast, Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com, featuring our special extended interview with UFC founder Art Davey is brought to you by Human Weapon Clothing. Human Weapon is a no-nonsense MMA clothing brand. Their graphics are clean, their products are high quality, and you can show off the sport you love without looking like a walking tattoo sleeve. I've been an MMA fan for a long time, and there is no company that ever puts out MMA clothing that fits my style. I'm kind of just not a skull and crossbones kind of guy. So if you're like me, head on over to humanweapon.com and use promo code FLOW, that's F-L-O, to get 15% off your entire first order. They will have that clothing that doesn't make you feel like a walking tattoo sleeve. Human Weapon brings you this episode of, of Top Turtle MMA, and it starts right now. We are rolling Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com. I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby Reeland. Thanks so much for checking us out. This, of course, is our end-of-the-year show, even though you'll probably be listening to it in the new year, 2018, supposing that the world hasn't ended. And uh, we just want to thank all our fans for all the support this past year, and we're going to have a great show today with Art Davey, the creator of the UFC, in a walk down memory lane, talking all about the creation of the UFC. But before we kick off into that, Gumby, let's talk about last night of the fights real quick. Chris Cyborg... Uh, you know, it was her toughest test to date uh, in Holly Holm, went the full five rounds. She won by convincing decision, no doubt about the decision. What do you make of the performance, and what do you do next with Cyborg? So, so I got a couple of things here. First of all, uh, it, you said very convincing decision. Two different judges have that 48-47. Did you have it 48-47? I did not, sir. Judges be acting crazy. Can, can, can you guess what two rounds they gave to Holly Holm? I didn't sit there with a pen and pencil scoring it. What if I told you that the judges gave her both of the first two rounds? Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, Cyborg clearly won the first round. I can almost see did Holly outpoint a little bit in the second. I'd have to go back and I thought maybe watch. I I think I I would have said if you had to pick two, two and four, but I had it four to one Cyborg. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, what do you do? What do you do next with her? So I, I think Megan Anderson is the only answer, right? There's nobody in that division, and unless they start seeing girls like crazy, uh, that division's gonna go away. For uh, me, unless, unless Cyborg can single-handedly just throw together money fights all the time, where she's like fighting for her belt in this fictional division, uh, I, I don't see any reason to keep the division. You know, just have money fights with what her you, all the time. Just throwing a belt you, on her doesn't make any sense. Can you expound on that? What do you mean by defending her belt but in money fights? But I, I mean just have money fights that don't have a belt because oh, yeah, yeah. Th- there's yeah. no division. So what does that belt mean? She's right. the champion of two people right now because Holly's going back to 35. Durandamy's back at 35. Tonya Evinger's back at 35. Yeah, Who's I was actually – 45. It's her and Megan Anderson. I'm with you. I'm with you, dog. I, I was actually – or, or Stop calling it a division. I was actually looking up the rankings today because I just wanted to see women's flyweight where that all shook out, and I went to the UFC's website, and they don't even have 145 rankings because yeah, they don't have enough fighters. <laughs> right. Um, and they do. You know, Cyborg's the champ, and the number one contender is Megan Anderson. So for me, it is Megan Anderson, and then after Cyborg demolishes her, no offense, I love Megan Anderson, but after Cyborg be Cyborg, the only other fight I could see of some interest as far as a money fight, and I know they're both Brazilian country women, uh, they seem to support each other, but I'd love to see Amanda Nunes come up just to see what would happen. It'd be interesting. At least yeah. interesting, and there's nothing else interesting about cyborg fights right now. And actually, you know what? I'll say this too, although this might be a mildly controversial take here. I think that that did more damage to cyborgs' pound for pound ranking than good. Uh, cause Just because it wasn't a dominant. Yeah, she didn't look like a killer anymore. She usually looks like she'd kill everybody always. In there, <laughs> she looked like she was gonna win, but she didn't look like the vicious killer we've known her as. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that team and Holly, they're so smart. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, I think if that went another half round, she would have gotten a, a finish eventually, but Maybe, it yeah. is what it is. All right, so uh, I'm Team Eagle, as we all know, and Habib came back after tiramisu incidents and another long layoff, and he did what Habib does. He put on a ground-and-pound clinic. Joe Rogan said it best. No one does ground-and-pound like Habib. I'll be completely honest, Gumby. 
I like Ben Askren. I've seen Ben Askren fights. I don't study Ben Askren like the way I've gone back and multiple times watched Habib, how he does the wrist ride and everything he does. But for me, pound for pound, I know some people might say uh, Ben Askren, and obviously you had like a guy like Brock Lesnar to say day, GSP, mm. a master of ground and pound. No one does ground and pound like Habib. Yeah. So here's here's a fun stat. I found it on uh, Twitter today. Unsure if it's actually accurate. Didn't do the, the fact check. Uh, but a guy named Michael Carroll tweeted out this stat. Uh, Habib is currently seven in ground strikes landed in UFC history. In front of him are George St. Pierre, Frankie Edgar, Randy Couture, Matt Hughes, Tito Ortiz, and John Fitch. Okay, so those are some pretty killer names. The, yeah. And, well, and, and Habib's seven. Habib has fought nine times. Guess who of the other of those six has fought the least amount of times? Uh, it'd be John Fitch, right? John Fitch, 18 times. Oh, my so God. So every single one of those guys has twice as many fights as Habib. Right. Twice as many. And Habib doesn't trail John Fitch by, let's see, he trails John Fitch by seven or 19 strikes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. dude, this, these are crazy numbers he's putting up. Crazy I, numbers. I was even thinking last night, you know, they did the stat. He had ten and a half minutes of ground control in a 15-minute fight. The fights start on their feet. Yeah. I mean, Edson Barbosa is a professional. He has good takedown defense, 84%, if I'm not mistaken. So the fact that he was ground control, that Habib was on top of him, ground and pounding him for two-thirds of that fight is just insane. Now, And that's that the key, said, too. You said, you said ground and pounding him for 10 minutes. If he had 10 minutes on top, he was throwing ground and pound for 10 minutes. Right. Um, it, I mean... I, I need, I'm sure somewhere on the internet someone's done it, but there was a moment, I think it was right, it was at the end of the first round where the look on Barbosa's face was like, despair. he looked, yeah, he looked like someone who was captured behind enemy lines. I, he, it was he just, didn't believe it could be like that, and I feel like it's that way for every one of Habib's opponents. I right. just don't believe it can be like that. Now, the UFC has a very interesting situation sort of triangle of things at the top of the 155 pound division you have habib and tony on million fight win streaks we've tried to match them up 13 times you know habib has pulled out twice tony's pulled out once it's like the match that just can't get made connor it's like habib said who knows what he's going to do it's probably going to be a money fight and that doesn't necessarily mean habib or tony uh tony's the actual interim champion and Connor's the real champion, so that makes sense. The bottom line is we should get some combination in 2018 of a Tony Connor Habib matchup, and I'm not complaining about whatever it is. The winner There's of the, the first one should fight the other remaining one. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. if they can. But don't you get the feeling, Gumby, that it's ne- but I almost feel like we will never see Habib versus Tony, or we will never see Habib versus like one of those matchups. I'll tell is- you what. I'll tell you the fight you're never going to see out of those three. The fight you're never going to see out of those three is you are never going to see Conor McGregor fight Habib Nurmagomedov. Right. You will never see that man step in there. Right. Kavanaugh watched that fight. Kavanaugh <laughs> just watched Edson Barboza fight that dude. There's no way Kavanaugh's letting fucking Conor step in there. Yeah, because the pressure is going to take away any sort of like of the deceit, uh, deceptive spin. Yo, that he's, a, he's elusive as shit, right? Conor is. He ain't right. that elusive. Right, he's just going to get... Chad Mendez caught him eventually. Chad <laughs> Mendez is not Habib. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, very good point. And I'll tell you something else. I mean, we had a huge breakdown show. It's in the archives, people, back in 2017 when we thought Habib and uh, Tony were going to fight. Uh, I'm very much pro, you know, Team Habib. You're very much pro Tony, but I think we both... Res- I-, I respect the hell out of Tony. I love Tony. If there was no Habib, I'm Team Tony all the way. But there's a Habib, so I'm Team Eagle. Bottom line, though, is I will say... You know, it, there's no one who's a perfect fighter, and we know Habib's not a perfect fighter. We know he could get outstruck on the feet, but if there was ever someone who does that bend, not break, and has at least the submission game off his back to threaten and maybe neutralize a little of the ground and pound, it is Tony. I don't want to get into a big breakdown on it. We've already done that. The bottom line is, it's a fight I need to see. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> we need well, to see it. And, and I'll say this, too. You mentioned that I'm, I'm Team Tony. I'm 100% Team Tony. Last night swayed me. I believe Habib beats Tony. Uh, mm-hmm. And we don't have to break it down. But I'm just saying last night, uh, I- I'm sold. I- I'm yeah. still I'm still rooting for Tony in that fight. But I don't think he wins it. 
All right, uh, and nothing more needs to be said about that. If you convert Team Tony to Team Habib, that's what the performance spoke to. So, Gumby, let's move on. It was the uh, the year that was in MMA, and we want to do a real quick on Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com. Our awards for the year. Uh, you've had other award shows, but I promise you, you don't have two fight nerds who care more than we do. So let's get right into this, Gumby. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. All right, so the way we're going to do this, you will give your answer then i will give mine and then we could talk about any runner-ups but i'm really most concerned and this is totally live people we did not pre-plan this i want to hear if we matched up on anything fighter of the year ko of the year sub of the year card of the year and debut of the year all concerning with the ufc we'll also name our fighter outside the ufc bubble but let's start with fighter of the year in the ufc your answer go so i, I had to do some debating for this for flow because flow's awards should be out later too and uh, i've i featured on those awards as well but it, it was a really hard pick for fighter of the year i think i'm gonna go with robert whitaker because that's who i voted for uh on flow he went two and oh though only uh with a couple of really good wins he beat jacare and he beat yoel romero for the title I, you just feel like there should be somebody more overwhelming than that but I couldn't think of anybody. I, I mean, right. I really think he had the best year with two wins. All right. Well, Jinx, buy me a Coke. I also had Robert Whitaker, and I'll tell you why. Those two wins were so impressive to me because no one has put Yoel Romero in that kind of trouble short of Tim Kennedy before Stoolgate, short of Derek Brunson, right? And nobody's, nobody's messed up Jacare like that either. And that was the other thing I was going to say. Jacare, for me, since about 20, I want to say 2014, whenever it was that he beat – um. Who did he beat in Connecticut? Uh, oh, he beat uh, Gerard um, Musashi. Yeah, yeah what, I was there that, at that fight. Crazy. That, per, that performance for me was when it was like, okay, I need to see Jacare fight for the belt. That was three years ago. Jacare has been the runner-up, the bridesgroom, the the second in command in that division for three years, yep. and Whitaker beat him. Wait, so those. Those two performances for me made Whitaker the fighter of the year. It was, you know, especially in that division, which was held up by, let's face it, a champion on paper only. We won't get into it, but the bottom line is that is a the top of that division, minus the the former champion um, and the person who just came back for one fight and then vacated the belt. That division is stacked yeah. at the top stacked and he put up two huge wins who else were you considering uh i thought about max holloway for a minute and mm-hmm. if uh cynthia Kilvijo had won last night i think she would have gone five and oh this year so i probably would have considered that with some pretty legit wins jojo calderwood and if she had beat carla esparza uh she would have been up there but apart from that nobody did i mean just, Good. just Friends, I mean, Naganu, uh, Max Holloway. Yeah, but what? I mean, Naganu be Overeem, but he be Overeem and fucking uh, a couple uh, of Andre Arlovsky, right? You know? Oh, the shell of Andre Arlovsky, and then Holloway beat Aldo and Aldo. Uh, Jose Aldo, right? The first Aldo win. You know what? Here's what it was. If if Edgar had stayed in that fight, and he, and he had, I, I would 100% pick Max exactly. Holloway. Correct, because then you're beating the godfather of, of the UFC at this point, and Aldo, who was the one-time GOAT. But he beat Aldo the... in the same exact way twice. Right, exactly. All right, um, who was your KO of the year, Gumby? Nagano over Overeem. Easiest pick. <laughs> okay, so I actually, oh, God, I debated on this. I bet, um, I bet you are going to pick my honorable mention. So let me tell you something. All day as I was thinking about this, I was going to go with Rose uh, TKOing Joanna because of the gravitas of yeah. the moment because no one I ever try really to avoid the gravitas of the moment. Okay, right. I, I and that's to... I, so that actually became my honorable mention just because of the gravitas for me it was Barbosa's that, knee on Benil Darush. That was my honorable mention. Yeah, that was yeah. the second one I was gonna pick. The timing, right? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Darush yeah. was so cold. <laughs> and then it's like, I would need to see the nerd stats on how many of KOs in a year, how many are just clear-cut knees. Three? Top? Two? You yeah, know what, what happened mean? really recently, though, that... Uh, that oh, Aljamain and Marlon Moraes? Mar- uh, that one and the Italian there, uh, Alessio DiCirico, uh TKO'd, or uh, KO'd clean with a knee, uh, Oluwale Bangboche. Right. Right, it but it's knee. so much fun when they happen. Because yeah. yeah, all right. Uh, what was your sub of the year? Uh, Brett John's uh, vaporizer cash cru- calf crusher over Joe Soto. Uh, half because it was such a sweet calf crusher, and half because he did it to Joe fucking Soto. 
That's an EBI veteran, and if you're unfamiliar with EBI, it's where leg lock, uh, it's leg lock heaven. And he got leg locked in the UFC. I mean, essentially leg lock. It's a calf crusher, but like leg lock. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a guy, Joe Soto, who made it to the finals of an EBI and, you know, didn't get leg locked along the way. So that was actually my honorable mention. I went with Gravitas for this one. And even though we all know I'm not the biggest Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson fan, that freaking suplex arm bar from a technical standpoint was that's just a thing of beauty. And it happened in a championship fight. So for me, that was it. Another honorable mention I thought about was just Von Flew getting two Von Flew chokes. What what else do you think? Von Poo, sorry. Von Poo get two Von Flues. Yeah. What else do you think about? Uh, I mean, that was pretty much it for me. I considered for a second GSP's sub of, of Bisping. Probably. But, but this was this was sick. I thought about Ortega over Swanson. Oh, that yeah, that actually would have been a routine, really, right? Yeah, especially because he was losing on the feet. I thought got very worried about his chances there and then just said F this and locked on that guillotine. So that was and really adjusted a, it. One of the best adjustments I've ever seen. So that was like such a great show of, you know, jiu-jitsu, never leave home without it. Um, All right, we're cruising here. Who was your debuting fighter of the year? Okay, so I know we're going to be different on this one, but on January 21st, there was going to be a Titan FC card in which a fighter was about to make a heavyweight title challenge, pulled out of his fight because he got a call from the UFC, and... Only a month or a, one year later, almost to the day, he's going to fight for the light heavyweight title. Vulcan Ozdemir signed with the UFC in January, and he is fighting for the title the very next January. It's got to be Vulcan Ozdemir 3-0. An- and All right, that is a good answer. I wanted to name this award the Zabbit the, the Award, <laughs> so for me it's Zabbit. He was 2-0. <laughs> Anaconda choke, rear naked choke, but here's why I'm such a Zabbit fan. He is employing what I want jiu-jitsu and MMA to be. It is a go-forward pressure jiu-jitsu. This is not Yair Rodriguez who wants to fall on his back, try to get someone to come into his guard. Hey, it's you know 2017, almost 2018. That's not going to happen anymore. I love the way Zabbit's game works. I love the video game kicks. He is a video game to me, and while I think your answer probably makes more sense because you're right, Vulcan Ozdemir, two nasty KO, highlight reel KOs over high-level guys. And a decision over St. Prue on short notice. And a decision over St. Prue, and is fighting for the title. Your answer is right, but I still want to name the award after Zabit, and that is my answer. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know what's crazy about Zabit, too? Those two performances, still not ranked in the UFC. Yeah. Who the fuck is not That's, ranking that guy well, after those two performances? It, it is a deep, I'll give him this, it's a deep, deep, deep division, yeah. but... Uh, you have to figure after the next one. All right, what but was Drew, your? Are you going to rank him or Miles Jury? I'm I'm with you. Yeah. I'm, I mean that could be a, that could be a whole other show on on the rankings. What was your fight card of the year? Oh, two seventeen. Yes. E- easiest pick in history. Three title fights, all of them changed hands. The card top to bottom was stacked like crazy. So let's just go over it real quick, because that was also my pick as well. There yeah, was not another answer there. GSP uh, beat Michael Bisping after a four-year layoff with a beautiful rear naked choke in the third round. Beautiful display. Uh, that size doesn't necessarily matter. Then you had TJ Dillashaw with the TK over Cody Garbrand after taking on heavy fire in the first round. Amazing fight. Rose, TK over Joanna in the first round. Uh, just incredible, right? No one was expecting her to knock her out. People gave her credit for maybe getting her on the ground and subbing her. No one ever saw the fight ending that way. Steven Thompson, Jorge Masvidal. Uh, Thompson had a unanimous decision win, but still a fun fight. Masvidal got in a couple of shots himself, and then Paulo Costo just destroying Johnny Hendricks. Yeah, that so, Personal watch right there, too, Paulo Costa. Just a that, freaking beast. And you know what, too, we're not even mentioning from the, from the prelims. There were, you know, a handful of good prelims. But Ovin St. Prue head kicked Corey Anderson into next week. He looked dead. Yes. Yes, just, absolutely. So and it was top to bottom, just a filthy card. Do you have anything off the top of your head that you had in the runner-up consideration? <sighs> Shit. Um, I, I'd have to come back to that. I can't even think of something off the top of my okay. head that was even close to that. Well, correct. Nothing was close to that. Let me just give you some things that came, for me, runner-up. So at UFC... 210, um, you had, nope, sorry, not 210, it was 214, was Cormier Jones 2? Yeah, 214. So just listen to the spike card gummy, and I only looked at the main cards. 
You had Jones coming back, beating Cormier. Uh, you had Cyborg with a bully beatdown on Tanya Avenger. Although Avenger actually put up, you know, somewhat of a better fight than we thought. Lawler Cerrone was an incredible fight um, that I will rewatch many times in my life. And Vulcan Ozdemir KO'd Jimmy Manoa. What kept it from greatness was you had the Woodley Damian Maya bore fest. Yeah. So sub out Woodley and Maya and div- do a different fight there. Now I'll give you one other one. UFC 218 just happened. Great fight card. Holloway uh, cemented himself again over Aldo. Naganu with the uppercut from hell over Overeem. And yet Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje with a fight of the century, fight of the year, right? Here's the problem. Henry Cejudo put on a very boring performance versus Sergio Pettis. Um, and Tisha Torres, uh, but, you know, great performance versus Michelle Waterson, but not really anything that makes you, like, you know, go out of your way to rewatch, right? Yeah. So. Long story short, here was my runner-up for the card, and maybe it's cheating because it was just a Fox card, and you really want your fight of the your fight cards of the year to be pay-per-views. There were only four fights on it, but it was the one that just happened. You had Rafael Dos Anjos beating Robbie Lawler. That was a sick card. Sick card. And then Josh Emmett with the upset KO over Lamas, and then uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Mike Perry. It was a decision, a unanimous decision for Ponzinibbio, but what a fun fight, right? Yeah. I mean, Twitter was blowing up during that fight, and then you had Glover Teixeira with the TKO, surprisingly, over Misha Serkinov, uh, just a beautiful main card. You know what else was an underrated card, too, just as long as we're pointing out underrated cards? The fight night that was in Sweden this year, uh, Gus had that sick knockout of Glover Teixeira. I looked at that, yeah. yeah. And, and then the undercards, uh, well, Serkinov. Well, Ozdemir knocked out Misha Serkinov in, like, 30 sure. seconds. Yep. There was like a sick uh, Jack Hermanson, Alex Nicholson fight that ended in a violent TKO. Um, and then uh, Marching Held had shot for a takedown, even though he was winning by like a fucking mile, and got knee KO'd by Demir Hadzovic. So, hey, there's another knee KO this year. Uh, and uh, he was out cold. Who was your fighter outside the UFC of the year? So, uh, I thought about this for a while, and uh, I'm going to go with. Kyoji Horiguchi, even though he's the Gooch. a UFC fighter, he won fucking three fights in the last three days uh, mm. and ended 5-0 and this year. Okay. Yeah, with, and, and with four finishes. And he's gone up a weight class. Right, right. He's the Gooch. Yeah, the Gooch. <laughs> we love All right, so I'll tell you who I love and who my fighter of the year is outside the UFC. It's Mackenzie Dern and her 500,000 Instagram followers, next big thing in the UFC. Now, while we know why the UFC is going to want to push her, because let's face it, she is beautiful, but this girl is a jiu-jitsu shark. She went 3-0. Let me just get through this. She went 3-0 this year with wins over Catherine Hoy, Mandy Polk, and Kayleen Medeiros. She had a submission armbar and a rear naked choke. This is the girl to watch at 125. Uh, So Mackenzie Dern is your fighter from outside. I was also going to say, even before this year, she beat... Uh, Montana De La Rosa, formerly Montana Stewart, who's in the UFC now and is ranked seventh at flyweight, which is crazy. And on top of that, her hands are coming around really fast. You yeah. mentioned her good jujitsu, but her hands are getting exponentially better every single day. Working at the lab, right? Yeah, it's the lab, dude. Yeah. Shout uh, out to our right. boy John Crouch. So, was there any other awards, or I think we're good, right? Uh, we I think did... that takes care of it, man. I, I think we can uh, we can segue into your interview with Art Davey. All right, so let me give a little background on this. Art Davey, obviously the co-creator of the UFC, author of the book, Is This Legal?, which I highly recommend for all fight fans. It is the history of the coming together of UFC 1, uh, how he teamed with the Gracie family, how he salesmaned his way uh, into cable executives' office and sold them on the idea of a no-holds-barred shoot fight, as it was was once called, uh, on pay-per-view, and... The NHB, and uh, now we did have a little audio malfunction to start it, so the first thing I'm asking him about is he just did a 30 for 30, or I should say ESPN just did a 30 for 30 podcast on the creation of the UFC, so if you're familiar with the 30 for 30 documentaries that you'll see on TV, they just did one on professional wrestler Ric Flair, which got huge ratings and had people abuzz, well they also have a podcast, which I think both of us are fans of, and we highly recommend, so it's the same same gimmick it's a documentary podcast 
and uh, they did one on the creation of the UFC. So that's the first thing I'm asking Art about. We really do hope you enjoy this interview with UFC co-creator Art Davey. This special interview with Art Davey is brought to you by two of our sponsors, Sisu Mouthguards and Dead Frog Brewery. Sisu makes the best, strongest, and most lightweight mouthguard on the market. You can talk, you can breathe, and you can drink all with that mouthguard up in your mouth. So protect those chompers by heading to sisuguard.com and getting the right mouthguard for you. And we are also sponsored by Dead Frog Brewery, a Canadian craft brewery that uses the best ingredients. No preservatives or pasteurization with these guys, just good, clean beer. So head on over to deadfrog.ca to learn more and or pick up some at your nearest liquor store. Dead Frog Brewery and Sisu Mouthguards brings you this interview with Art Davey. This is David Tremonti of FlowCombat.com's Top Turtle MMA podcast, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with co-creator of the UFC, Art Davey. Uh, Art, thank you so much for coming back on the show with us. We thought it was proper timing as we end the year. Fun time just to look back on the creation of the UFC 24 years ago. Perfect timing as well because ESPN 30 for 30 podcasts just released a new episode titled No Rules, The Birth of the UFC. You could get that wherever a podcast is being streamed, the 30 for 30 podcast series. Perfect companion to your book, Art, uh, Is This Legal?, which you, of course, co-wrote with Sean Wheelock. This 30 for 30 podcast almost felt like the audio companion of the book. I want to start by asking you how this project came to be and how long it took to put together. They did 50 hours of interviews with everybody involved in UFC 1. They went to Holland, they got a hold of Gerard Gordeaux, they went to Hawaii, and they got a hold of Taylor Wiley. Uh, They spoke to Ken Shamrock, they spoke to Hoist Gracie, they spoke to some of the people at Semaphore Entertainment Group, and they spent 12 and a half hours at my house here in Nevada interviewing me. I thought they did a phenomenal job. Uh, as someone who who read your book, is it is this legal? Which you could get on Amazon. Uh, I thought it was a great representation of everything that went into UFC One. How did you like it overall? And did you wish they included anything else? No, I think they did a tremendous job, and I told them that. I think that when you record fifty hours with various uh, people involved, uh, the real job then at that point is editing. And I think they did a great job of editing it down to about, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes. And I think they captured the essential uh, uh, flavor and feel of that time. You know, because as I tell people in interviews, I originally had this idea back in 1989. And it took a few years of, uh, of, uh, uh, of leadership on my part to get... Horian Gracie involved, to get Semaphore Entertainment involved, and to get 28 investors to give us money to move this thing forward on our side, as well as 10 fighters to be in that first UFC, eight for the tournament and two alternates. By the way, I dedicated my book, Is This Legal?, to those 10 fighters. Yeah, well, great move. Great move on your part, because those were 10 very brave individuals at the time, not really knowing what they were getting themselves into. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, the last time we chatted with you, you had mentioned uh, there might be a, a movie in the works. Maybe UFC 1 goes to Hollywood. Is there any update on that? Is that any further along? Has anyone approached you about an actual movie representation? We, uh, we sold the rights in 2015, but I recently, in regaining the rights, have resold it. In fact, we just signed on Friday, and um, uh, we had four offers from different producers with Studio Connections, and uh, the, the, the producer we finally sold it to, who's looking to keep this thing under wraps until he has a big announcement, the announcement being the right director and the right A-list star attached to the project, mm-hmm. his last two films have won Academy Award nominations for both leading men. So he's very excited about the book. He was very excited about hiring two great writers uh, that they've already been contracted and I've met with. And uh, they've begun work on... Uh, uh, creating a screenplay, and um, I have a good feeling that uh, sometime in 2018 there'll be a major announcement that this uh, 
this project will be going forward in front of the cameras. Wow. Well, congratulations on that great news. I mean, just as a fan, that makes me so excited. When I was going back through the podcast, I had two moments I, uh, I kind of wanted to highlight that I thought would be great in a movie. One was when everyone was arguing about the rules and Teletui stood up and said, I'm here to party. That's straight out of a movie. And then the story of you and Hickson going to collect your advance from the uh, ticket promoters. Just so perfect for a movie. So I'm so glad to hear that because it, it's something that deserves the, uh, the big screen treatment. Well, Dave, the, uh, the writers feel the same way. Uh, the writers are represented by UTA. My agent is my producer is represented by William Morris Endeavor, who now owns the UFC. And they feel that there are three real climactic moments in the movie and you've uh, you've highlighted two of them by bringing them up nice. number one the uh the great scene where uh, i had to go to barry Fay's office the rock father <laughs> our local uh, promoter in there in the denver area and collect that advance guarantee and i brought my glock 17 with me and i brought one of the gracie brothers <laughs> hickson, H- it was hickson right was it hickson yeah yeah it was hickson <laughs> although i gotta tell you i gotta tell you a funny story in writing the book you know, after 20 years, you sit down and you're recalling and looking at all your notes. There was a time that I thought it might have been Helson. Because, you know, in all fairness, in the Gracie family, the two real bad dudes mm-hmm. in that family were, of course, Hickson as the family champion, who I've said is a cross. He looks like a cross between Antonio Banderas and Mike Tyson. <laughs> and then in all fairness, as Elio Gracie used to say to me, if they ever needed anybody to take action on the street, he would point to Helson, hmm. and it was Helson who was, in some respects, one of the real tough street dudes. But as I recall, I believe it was Hickson. And then, as you pointed out, the other great climactic scene is we had lost control in the fighters' meeting on Thursday night. We had lost control. Um, Hicks, uh, Horian started to talk about, well, you know, maybe we really won't be allowing the knuckles to be wrapped. Maybe they need to be wrapped a quarter inch back. And at that point, Zane Fraser, the kickboxer, IKF champion, stood up, and he had an objection. Zane's a very bright guy, very articulate. And then uh, Art King Jimerson, the cruiserweight heavyweight boxer, mm. he stands up and he says, wait a minute, that's what I do for a living. I got to buy. And if you guys are in effect saying that this event is truly no rules and it was only supposed to be no biting or eye gouging, and if you had a fight on the street, where would a guy have time to wrap his hands? So you can see a photo in the book of Horian and I looking on in this meeting. And I've got my head in my hands. And I got to tell you something. I was lost. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do next. I said recently in an interview, and I think I said it on the 30 for 30 podcast, I thought about faking a heart attack. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and maybe dropping to the ground. Because at that point, Michael Pilot. The producer, our line producer from Semaphore, I see him making a slash across the the neck gesture with his hand, telling me, you got to put a stop to this. And then that's when Hickson Gracie stood up in the room Mm -hmm. at the table. And when Hickson stood up, the entire room got quiet. All week long, there had been staring contests between Hickson and some of the Gracies. And the Samoans and and Hawaiians accompanying Taylor Wiley in the lobby of the hotel, I was getting calls all throughout the week from security and from my event coordinator, Kathy Kidd, that this might break out into a brawl. So they're at the fighter meeting. When Hickson stands up, I see this whole thing falling apart. It's going to turn into a brawl. Fighters will be injured. We'll all be arrested. And there's no fight on Friday night. The guy who saved my butt. He saved all of us is Taylor Wiley, who plays Kamakona on Hawaii Five O. Mm-hmm. He stands up and he says, hey, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I plan to be there tomorrow night. Anybody ready to party? I'll see you there. I signing the paper and he slams it on the, the top of the desk that he had signed it. And the whole room got quiet. And then the Gracie's erupted in applause. <laughs> and when that happened, my, my, my ass was taken out of the, the – off the pan and off the frying pan and off the fire. I was saved. That's right. And, I mean, just even in the, the moment of tooth, as they call it, with Tella taking that kick from Gerard yes. Gardot to set off the, the event, I mean, he's kind of like the, the unspoken MVP of the whole weekend, right? 
He and I have remained friends. Every time I talk to him, I thank him because he saved all of our butts. It was a spontaneous gesture. It was the right thing at the right time. Now, of course, the writers feel that the third great climax of the film are the seven bouts themselves in the tournament, mm. uh, which is in chapter 11 of my book and which will be one of the climaxes of the film. And, of course, you know, then Hoist winning and uh, being able to say that he's going to Disneyland. But we think that uh, potentially there's a wonderful drama. There's a lot of uh, a drama between uh, the Gracies in terms of whether or not it would be Hickson or Hoist who fought. And we think that this will be an entertaining film, not only for martial arts fans around the world, of which there are now so many, but we think it'll be a good entertaining movie in the sense that Moneyball is a good movie about baseball. Absolutely. So well said. I mean, this is really, it's, you know, it's, it's that big bang moment of, of mixed martial arts in America. And it's a story that needs to be told. I thought to myself, you know, if you're a wrestling fan, you could go on the WWE network right now and there's 13 documentaries about WrestleMania one, Vince McMahon leveraging his small savings, putting his company and his savings on the line for WrestleMania one. There's not enough uh, you know, I think homage to to that event, and maybe that's because of the ownership switch or or whatever it is. But to me, you know, the more stories around that event, the better. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I got to tell you, we feel the same way. I was out recently over the weekend with George and uh, Brian Garcia, uh, the MMA junkie uh, host mm-hmm. here in Las Vegas, and they brought me out to a uh, to the uh, the two bases in Newport uh, News and Norfolk, Virginia the Army base, the Fort uh, Eustace, Eustace mm-hmm. and the Langley Air Force Base. And I was impressed in talking to so many of the young soldiers and airmen that so many of them, for, for them, MMA really started only a few years ago. In some cases, it really started with Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey. But there really is a wonderful history. And when you look at some of the great pioneers, of which I'm so proud that I recruited guys like not only Hoist, but Severin and Shamrock and, and uh, uh, Mark Kerr, Mark mm-hmm. Coleman. Uh, Maurice Smith, uh, Don Fry, Frank Shamrock, etc. And I think that a lot of the young fans today will gain an appreciation if this book makes it to a film and they get to see what what this was all about before it became, you know, a Fox News staple or a a Spike TV staple. And uh, I think there's a great story there. And I appreciate that someone like yourself with low combat have a great appreciation for it oh absolutely you know i wanted to ask you a couple uh you know hindsight 2020 questions about the event one if hoist hadn't fought i know there was the whole discussion between hoist and hickson but let's just say a gracie didn't fight that night for whatever reason uh because horian was the matchmaker you know just we're playing a hypothetical here who do you think wins that night if no gracie is in the tournament well, you know, that's a very good question, Dave. And I got to tell you that I was still juggling them. Ma- you know, Horion did me a great favor early on in our relationship where he turned to me and said, you know, I know you're not a black belt in any particular martial art, but you're the business guy who's come up with this entire scheme, the the LLC, the WOW promotions, the uh, we're going to be in Denver. He said, you're going to be the booker. And he said, that's fine. I know you've done your homework. And uh, as you pointed out, there was some great debate between in the Gracie family, or whether or not they would put in Hicks and a Hoist. And yet, in all fairness, if, if Hoist was not in the event, in all fairness, I would have to say, based upon my juggling those matchups as late as Wednesday night, two days before the tournament, that I think that Gerard Gordeaux would have won the event. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordeaux was a European kickboxer. I was so eager to bring in a European kickboxer. Not that I was opposed to American kickboxing, but the idea of... of mandatory eight kicks in a round or whether or what you'd, you would lose points. There was no kicking below the waist. American kickboxing was, in a way, kind of a wimpy version of Muay Thai. Mm. You know, so I was really eager. And I had reached out in Holland to the Maguro gym and the the, 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 uh, 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 the Sakariki gym. Chakariki gym headed up by Tom Harring and the Maguro gym headed up by Johan Plas. And both of those guys listened to me on the phone. They did not uh, blow me off like a lot of people, including Emmanuel Stewart at the Kronk Gym in Detroit when it came to reaching out for a boxer. But those two Dutchmen listened to me and they understood what I was doing. And I said, look, I I know I'm probably not going to be able to afford a Peter Arts and Ernesto Hoost, Mm. you know, and Andy Hoog. But you need to give me, I need to get a really tough Dutch fighter 
who can kick to the legs. Mm. And they gave me Gerard Gordeau, who was also the world savat champion at the time. And, you know, he was a real tough guy. Johan Plus said to me, a lot of the rave owners, the brothel owners, they use him as, as an enforcer. He's, he's a muscle guy on the street. Mm. He said he's a real tough guy in a ring, out of a ring, in a cage, out of a cage. Gerard Gordeau can deliver the goods. Uh, jo- uh, John Milius, our creative consultant and film director and screenwriter, said to me after the event, he says, you know, Art, I've known a lot of tough guys, you know, uh, in the movie business and around the movie business. And he said, uh, I think that Gerard Gordeau is one of the toughest guys I've ever met. <laughs> and he was right. Gordeau was an assassin. He was, yeah. he was like a CIA assassin. Remember that he broke his hand in that 26-second bout knocking out Taylor Wiley, mm. and he had two of his feet, two of those, of, of those teeth still embedded in his foot. <clears throat> I, was in the back, I was in the back area watching the doctor with a tweezer take one of the teeth out of his foot, which he got a blood poisoning from when he went home to Holland. You know, and I think that if Hoist wasn't in the event, that's a very good question, Dave. I think that Gordeau would have won it. I think he was the toughest guy. Now, it would have been interesting to see if he had ended up in a final bout with, with Ken Shamrock. Shamrock. That's who I thought you were. I thought you were going to say Shamrock, but yeah. Uh, no, very interesting to kind of play that what-if game. You know, you mentioned uh, some of the other people. You know, you went to top boxers, top wrestlers. I almost don't want to give it away. I encourage people to get the book is this legal because it was just so fun to go back and hear you pitching some of the top amateur wrestlers i mean you guys even toyed with the idea of a pro wrestler but could you give us you know who's the one guy again this is hindsight 2020 just fun hypothetical who's the one guy you wish you got in that tournament for ufc one well you know i I really i was talking to dan gable at the university of iowa i wanted a top wrestler and i didn't get somebody until ufc3 when i finally got you know dan severin but uh i was really looking for a top wrestler i was talking to uh uh, eric bischoff over at the wcw uh you know in terms of trying to get manga who i heard was really a tough guy Mm. in and outside of a wrestling ring yeah but i tell you there's a couple of guys i really wanted uh, I, I wanted Dennis Alexio. I wanted the best kickboxer, I thought, at that time, heavyweight, in the ring. And he, he turned me down, not only for UFC 1, but he turned down a $50,000 offer to fight Hoist in UFC 5. Wow, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, there was a guy that I felt would, be, would add a certain amount of legitimacy to what we were doing. I felt that people knew him from the film Kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't get him. So, you know, early on, uh, a lot of the no's were interesting. Um, you know, people like, uh, uh, you know, there were, there, were, uh, there, were, there were football players that had gone into boxing that I was looking at. There was Leon Spinks. There was James Bonecrusher Smith. Spinks would have been, uh, for the time, I think, just, you know, from that boxing representation, Spinks would have been very big. And I couldn't get him. And I went to the uh, Joe Fraser's gym in Philadelphia and got two great cut men for the first event you know, Leon Tabs and the great Sam Solomon. But I wasn't able to get a heavyweight boxer until I hooked up with Ernest Hart, kickboxing champion from St. Louis, who turned me on to a lot of the guys in the boxing gyms in, in uh, St. Louis. I was getting no's everywhere. In fact, the boxers told me the same thing that the sumo wrestler representatives in Japan told me. You're not going to get anybody to fight any one of these guys in karate pajamas. Right. going to happen. You right. Know. They look down on it. They look down they on look it. Down on it. Exactly. So, you know, the first event, that's why I dedicated the book to the guys who said yes, because it was so many people who said no. You know, uh, you mentioned talking to Eric Bischoff, World Championship Wrestling at the time. It, you know, in Japan, mixed martial arts, it, it, the seeds of mixed martial arts in Japan are kind of steeped in pro wrestling soil, so to speak. Yes. And yes. it's interesting that with your event in UFC 1, other than, you know, you had Zane Breslov, who's a very forgotten name in wrestling. He was a promoter for Vince McMahon. He was a promoter yes. for WCW. You guys really did not have any ties, so to speak, to pro wrestling, which is, you know, opposite what mixed martial arts is in Japan. The two were almost interchangeable. You couldn't tell if you were watching a real fight or a, a fake fight. You bring up a very good point, Dave. And one of the, the treats for me in UFC 1 is that Barry Fay had brought Zane Breslov uh, in as a uh, as a co-promoter for the live event, and he and I hooked up in, a, uh, in Barry's office, 
And I got to tell you, a very bright guy who figured out, he said to me, he said, I'll tell you who's going to win this tournament of yours, this crazy thing that you're doing. I said, who? He said, it'll probably be this, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, but it might be Ken Shamrock. Hmm. As, as a grappling promoter, as a guy hooked up in the Midwest for the WWE, he understood grappling. And he said to me, none of these karate boys or kickboxers are going to win. He said, it's either going to be Shamrock or Gracie. Very bright. And on the other hand, my ad in Black Belt magazine brought me a young guy named uh, Scott the Sack from the Lion's Den in Stockton. Hmm. And he said to me, I, I'm interested. I want to apply. And as we're talking, he said, Mr. Davey, I think you really need my coach, teacher, and trainer. I said, who's that? He said, Ken Wayne Shamrock. Well, first of all, I love the name, mm. Ken Wayne Shamrock. And when he told me that he was over working shows in Pancras in Japan, I had done my homework. That was my also, that was my alternate connection to the wrestling world. That's as you true. Out, pro wrestling in Japan had an incipient relationship with MMA. And I knew that there were works, uh, shoots and half works, semi works right. in Pancras. So the funny story is when I finally hooked up with Ken and signed him up, he was working a show on Saturday night in Fukuoka. He was the last fighter in Denver to arrive. Everybody else got there Sunday, Monday. Tuesday late, Shamrock gets in from Fukuoka. I didn't see him till Wednesday morning uh, in the garage of the hotel. He was heading over to Gold's Gym to do a workout. And he says to me, hey, Art. Is this a real event? Is this a shoot? <laughs> I said, Ken, we've been through this before on the phone three times. I told you it's a shoot. He said, there's some guy going to fight in this event that wears karate pajamas. He was referring to Hoist Gracie. And he said, Art, that guy's never had a pro fight. He said, I'm still doubtful that maybe this is a half work that you're not telling me. <laughs> Spoken like he a true pro wrestler. He didn't believe it was real. Exactly, Dave. <laughs> He was still, and I got to tell you, when his doubt evaporated, the night of the event, in the dressing area, we had set up a monitor for all of the fighters to see the first bout. And when everybody was watching that 26-second bout between Gerard Godot and Taylor Wiley, the shot heard around the world, I had come backstage to see the fighters before I went back to the truck or the octagon. And I looked over at Ken, he looked over at me, and he nodded. What he was, in effect, saying to me is, all right, this is the real deal. You haven't been bullshitting me. That's right. I think that was a, a shocking moment for a lot of people looking on. Um, yes. You know, speaking of pro wrestling, uh, Dave Meltzer was interviewed uh, in the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast. He brought up a great point. You know, he talked about the fact that UFC 1 was answering a question, you know, which yeah. style uh, works best. And that, to me, is kind of like the, the true beauty of that event, was it finally answered that question and probably put a lot of you know BS uh, karate schools out of business at the same time. Do you think, I don't know if this bothers you or not, uh, do you think some of the original intent of the UFC is kind of long and gone now, now that the sport has evolved almost to uh, one style, the style of MMA, taking some of the best disciplines, but do you know what I'm trying to say? Whereas, like, the original events were trying to answer what the best style was. Now the answer just kind of is it's MMA as a whole. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely, Dave. That's a very good point and a very good issue. And here's how I look at it. First of all, early on, I knew it was style versus style. In fact, I've said in interviews that if you were making – if you were in the martial arts business, you weren't making any money. If you were any good at it, in fact, you got out of the martial arts. The proof? Bruce Lee, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Chuck Norris. They all got into the films, films or TV. Right. There was nobody really making money in the martial arts. In fact, if you owned a school, you were making a living. You were feeding your family. You were paying your mortgage. But you weren't getting rich. And you weren't going to accept a challenge from a guy across town for a bout to determine whether your art was better than his. Because if you did it publicly and you lost you were going to lose your students. You were going to lose your business. Right. And, no, and nobody in the martial arts business wanted to do that. So early on, when you think about it, what Art Davey did as the booker for the event is I recruited, I recruited guys who were in the kicking, punching arts, Taekwondo, Kempo, Shotokan, Gung Fu, Shing Yi, uh, you know, et cetera. 
And we were, I, I recruited some guys who were bar brawlers like Tank Abbott. And then I recruited, you know, some of the jujitsu guys later on, the Sambo guys and the wrestlers. Now, what happened was by UFC 3, the fighters themselves started to change the event. They started to cross-train. Kimo Leopoldo, after UFC 3's loss to Hoist Gracie, showed up at the Gracie Academy in Torrance asking Torrance if he could, asking Corian if he could take jiu-jitsu lessons. Right. The fighters themselves were starting to change. They were starting to evolve. So over time, the fighters evolved MMA into submission kickboxing. Absolutely. Right. So the old style versus style, the inevitability of it, was was exposed early on, uh, you know, whether which style was dominant. The grapplers, as soon as I started to bring in the Severins, the Coleman's, the Kerr's, the Randy Couture's, the Don Fry's, that changed the nature of the event. And by then, the Gracie's were out, quite frankly. Right. So I give fighters full credit. And Dave knows that. Meltzer knows that. Meltzer knows that by UFC 3, the tournament format was flawed. Because if the best fighter broke his hand in the, in the semifinals, you would never get to find out that night maybe who the real best ultimate champion was. So the, the, the event started to evolve. And I like to point out that by UFC 15, 85% of the rules that went into the unified rules of MMA were rules that I had added with John McCarthy and uh, Jeff Blatnick's help to the, to the uh, format of the UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote five rule books, and we added rules, judging, rounds, uh, gloves, weight classes, prohibited strikes. So the, the event was was meant to, to evolve. And I look back on the early events realizing they were a wonderful ride for all of us. But it was a crazy time. And it was the only way to do the event. I'm, I'm very proud that the two original ideas I had, the tournament and pay-per-view, were the right thing. Because the enormous response we got. Yeah. We had almost 88,000 people subscribe to the first event and 300,000 people subscribe to the second and this one there was a lot fewer people that had the box that could get pay-per-view do you recall how did the uh the vhs video sales do of those early events they did very well uh, yeah. again i we had fans waiting you know down the old days the the, the brick and mortar blockbuster video mm-hmm. stores, waiting for the next event i run into fans all the time around the country and even uh, around the world who have said to me we used to wait for that next event to come out, we were waiting for Vidmarks, you know, VHS to be available, and we were waiting for your next pay-per-view event. I got to tell you that in the early days, a couple of things worked for us. Number one, word of mouth, the fans spread the word. The media, by fighting us and the politicians like McCain, right. actually helped sell the event because they kept telling people it was forbidden. Right. It was bad. Right. Uh, bad press is good press. Um we we've talked about this in the last time uh you were on the show and you speak about it at length in the book but there's such a it's a poignant scene you paint in is this legal with the people who were upset at the after party with Hickson being one of them where yes. you know I think you infer maybe from across the room he was mad he didn't do it how uh, it, did you guys ever come close to getting Hickson back? I know obviously you were going to bring back the defending champ, so to speak, Hoist, but it, was any other event where Hickson was really close to competing or, or no? No, that's a very uh, interesting question, and I'd be glad to give you a little more insight into it. There were three unhappy men at the Monsters Ball on November 13th, 1993. Everybody dressed up in tuxedos if they had them. The ladies came in, 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 in ball gowns and party dresses. But there were three unhappy men at that event. Number one, Pat Smith. Mm. He thought he was going to win this thing. He had won the Sabaki Challenge in that same arena. And he was shocked that he had gotten into an ankle lock, foot lock situation with a guy in a, in a red Speedo <laughs> who looked like Captain America that he thought he would knock out with a couple of punches. So he left early. He was unhappy. Um, Hicks and Gracie was very unhappy. Hicks and Gracie was very unhappy. He was sitting at a table behind me, and his wife at the time, Kim, was in Portuguese, where she was berating him. I, uh, Brazilians have told me that what she was saying to him is, this should be your night. Mm. You should be the guy on top of the world. Instead, it's your kid brother, Hoyce, who he trained. Mm. 
So, you know, there were two very unhappy guys there. The third guy, of course, was was Ken Shamrock himself, who in some respects has never completely gotten over the loss, the, the loss to hoist that night with the triangle choke and wearing the gi and not being able to wear his shoes, which he brought up in the fighter meeting. He never got over that loss. Now, on the other hand, after UFC 3, Horian called me up and he'd heard that I was trying to get Karelian from Russia, the three-time Greco-Roman uh, gold medalist into the UFC. I was talking to the Kowalski brothers who had a relationship with him, and I was trying my damnedest to get Alexander Karelian, the experiment, three, four percent body fat, six foot three, 285 pounds, maybe the world's greatest grappler. And Horian said to me, he says, my father's coming in the town. Maybe you and I and Hickson ought to have a meeting. I said, I'm in. Tell me when and where. So we arranged to have a meeting over at the WOW office. Elio Gracie came in. Now, Horian had already talked to Hoyce. Bringing him to that meeting on a Saturday, Hoyce sat on the couch next to his father. And with his head down, not saying a word, Hickson sat to my left. Horian sat right in front of me. Elio was to my far right sitting on the couch. And Horian conducted the, the, the meeting in both English and Portuguese for my benefit. And what it was was Hickson was there to tell us, if Hoyce is stepping down now that Horian is saying he should, I'll be willing to come into the UFC. But he turns to me and he says, Art, Arturo, he called me. He said, Arturo, I want a million dollars. I said, Hickson, nobody's getting a million dollars. Your brother got $60,000 for UFC 2. Steve Jenham got 60000 for UFC 3 as the alternate. Nobody's making a million dollars. He said, you and Horian are making a lot of money. He said, Mike Tyson gets $10 million. He said, all I want is a million. And then Elio Gracie raised his hand. And Hickson got quiet. And Elio spoke in Portuguese. And what he said to Hickson, which was translated for me later, was this. You've been too long in America. Back in the day, I didn't fight for money. I fought for our family's honor. Hmm. You've been too long in Estados Unidos. Hickson looked at his father, did not raise an eyebrow. In fact, he stood up. He nodded at his father. He didn't make. A, he didn't even look at Horian. He shook my hand, didn't look at Hoyce, and he left the room. And that was the last discussion that we ever had with Hickson Gracie about entering the UFC. From that point on, it was dead. Wow. I mean, that that's an incredible story. What do you make of that? Because, I mean, obviously, when he did Valley Tudo, I mean, maybe when he went to Pride, he did Pride 1, Pride 4, maybe he made close to a million. I mean, I, I don't know that either of us could really know that, but gee, I don't know. It just, that seems weird to me that that he wouldn't want to fight. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think if you if you take a look at Hickson's record on Sherdog, you'll see that in his 11 bouts, there was a lot of pro wrestlers. He decided to, to take the easy money, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He went over to Japan and fought people that, in all fairness, were not, you know, he didn't fight the Mark Coleman's of this world. He didn't fight the uh, the Randy Couture's, right. the Don Fry's. I would have loved to have matched Hickson up against them, in all fairness. But he went over, and you look at his record, he went over and he fought people that he felt he could beat. And I give him, you know, I give him credit that he was smart enough to say, I'm going to go make the money. He did, and he probably did make that money when he fought in Japan. Uh, you know, I, I've probably kept you longer than I should, Art. Do you have a couple more minutes for me? I just have one or two more questions. Absolutely. Okay, great. Uh, so next year, 2018, uh, I'm not great at math, but that would be the 25th anniversary of uh, your creation, the UFC. Has there been any talk, any inclination that this might be the year you go into the Hall of Fame? Uh, Bob Meyerowitz went in last year. I think the the fans, the hardcore fans, the hardcore MMA historians, it's something we would like to see as really the person who created the UFC. A any inkling of, of a Hall of Fame nod for you, the UFC Hall of Fame? You know, I, I have not heard from the UFC since I got a call from Dana back in uh, in October of 2013, inviting me to the UFC 167, the 20th anniversary show. Mm -hmm. I have never heard from anybody. I talked to a few people over there, uh, Aunt Evans in particular, uh, but uh, they don't have any great communication with me. you got to remember for them, I'm part of that era when it was a spectacle and not a sport. Mm. And to some extent, they've you know there's revisionist history here, and they've kind of uh, 
you know, they've moved above and beyond that. You look at their agreement with Fox uh, several years ago, maybe their agreement next year with Fox or perhaps with another network or Amazon or maybe Netflix. And the UFC has moved on. But uh, I feel that I was honored uh, several years ago when the MMA Hall of Fame yes. uh, brought me in along with John McCarthy and Hicks and Gracie and Fyodor Emelianenko, the last emperor. And I got to feel uh, my feeling, Dave, is that the, the, the real fans, the old school fans of MMA, if they know me at all, they know what I did. And most importantly, I know what I did. And that's the most important thing. I know what I did. I'm very proud of what I did. When I was in the advertising business, I used to say, look, my job is to help uh, uh, make sales for companies who will then use that revenue and that profit to feed their family, to put their kids in school. And I think what I've done with the UFC is I've helped to create as the key founder and in some respects, really the creator of the UFC. I've helped to create jobs for people in journalism, management, fighting, clothing. From here to from Norway to 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 Thailand, from uh, from Argentina to Russia, and on that basis alone, I'm very proud. Yeah, and as well, you should be. And I, and I know you're not going to say it. I'll say it as a fan. I think you deserve to be in it. These Hall of Fames, you know, the whole argument: who should be in, who shouldn't be in. Fans get very invested in it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you, you're you sound like you're very centered with it, and, and you sound like that in the podcast too. You know, you have a great line about seeing the billboard in L.A. and yes. feeling like a proud parent, and then just driving on. Uh, you know, you seem very centered with everything that's happened. But just for the fans, for the people who read the book, for the people who are historians, you know, I think it would be a nice moment for them as well. Uh, and I do hope you get that honor at some point, and I'm sure you will. Uh, I had to ask this. Um, you know, you were responsible for bringing so many fighters from their singular discipline into the UFC to answer that question, what was the best style? And last uh, earlier this year in August, we saw Conor McGregor, one of the best MMA fighters, go into boxing, you know, a singular style. What did you make of that whole spectacle, and, and what did you think of it? Well, you know, I got a call from a reporter over at ESPN, and he wanted me to comment about it, and I... I handled it this way. I first of all, I felt that uh, UFC, the MMA universe, had come a good distance and made progress in the sense that uh, Mayweather's biggest payday would be him fighting Conor McGregor, an MMA fighter. Personally, if I had been involved, uh, was still around in the business, I would have wanted to promote it as an MMA fight vis-a-vis James Tony versus you know Randy Couture. But I think that uh, it, uh, it it increased the public's awareness of MMA. And I think on that basis alone, it was good. But when the US ESPN reporter said, would you want to comment on it? I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, did you guys cover the Michael Phelps great white shark race as a legitimate sporting event? <laughs> Answer said, being oh, no. no. I said, well, I said, that's my comment. So, you know, uh, but I think in, in all fairness, I think it created a lot of awareness, additional awareness for MMA. Hey, I got to tell you something. Ronda Rousey was a big factor in getting MMA. When I was out at the military base uh, a week or so ago in Norfolk, I was amazed at how many young men and women were really getting into MMA when Ronda came in and became a, a, a figure of renown. Yeah. You know, I think that's something amongst, you know, kind of hardcore fans, which I, of course, count myself a, a part of, is that in 2013, the emergence of Ronda and Connor, I, I think a whole new fan got brought yes. into the sport. You know, I yeah. think there was sort of like a parting of the ways there in 2013, uh, and a whole new fan base got introduced to the sport that, you know, they even said when GSP was coming back that they would have to introduce him to the new yes. fan base. And I thought yeah. that might have been negotiation leverage, but I, I think it was actually true. I think, you know, they have a whole new fan now in, this, in the Connor-Ronda era. Absolutely. As I say, I talked to 18 to 22 year old uh, airmen and soldiers uh, two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, GSP for them is uh, is ancient history. You know, he's like, who, when? You know, he was welterweight champ, when? <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I think that a whole bunch of fans came in when Ronda and, and Connor uh, got the sport to the next level. And I've said in interviews, and I believe that I'm not, a, a, you know, a prophet or a seer about this, but I'll bet money that, that MMA is bigger bigger a lot bigger 20 years from today mm. uh john you know john milius and i used to talk about this back in 92 93 that if you bring back pancration from the ancient greek olympics it was there for a thousand years in the olympics it was a hybrid sport with kickboxing and and grappling 
and it allowed everything, including kicking and punching and holes, throws and chokes. The only thing prohibited was biting and eye gouging. When you bring that back and you bring it back to the modern era, it's going to get bigger. Why? As Horian Grace used to say, if a fight breaks out at a football game in the stands, where does everybody look? The stands? The stands. <laughs> and you know something? When you put MMA in an arena, it's a primal event, and it represents the best of mano y mano, man to man, women versus women. And I got to tell you something. It'll be bigger in 20 years than it is today. All right. Well, listen, Art, we we always appreciate you coming on. I could talk to you really forever, and I'm not going to keep you any longer. I'm just going to tell people, uh, you know, check out the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast, The Birth of the UFC, wherever a podcast is being streamed. And if you are an MMA historian, an MMA nerd such as myself, is this legal? The Art Davy story with Sean Wheelock is it's a must-have for any MMA fan. Art, is there anything else uh, you want to plug or that you're doing? Or, uh, you know, we'll look forward to catching up with you in 2018, I'm sure. But we can't thank you enough for, uh, for taking some time for us tonight. Well, thank you, Dave, for mentioning the book. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's doing well. And I would say to fans, I'm hopeful that this year, 2018, a film based on the book will go in front of the cameras. And when it does, I'll come on your podcast and we'll talk about it. All right. We'll hold you to that, Art. Congratulations on that good news. We hope it comes to fruition. And thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. Have a good night. All right, Gumby, there you have it. Art Davey, what would you think? Ah, I love to talk about the movie, uh, kind of that Moneyball feel UFC movie. Could be good. Uh, yeah, it could be good for the sport, too, given you know kind of how it's taken a little downturn in ratings. Uh, live sports in general have in, in the year 2017. So like, it would be a really cool thing for A, the sport, and B, it's nice to know that, you know, because he talked about this a while ago when we interviewed him last time. It's nice to hear that it's in hands that can actually handle it and it looks like are going to handle it. Yeah, people who can actually tell the story the right way. And if it's in that sort of money ball, you know, it's almost like oh, a guys. it's a it's a movie, but it almost feels like a documentary. It's very real to life. They're not going to take those like you know, stupid Hollywood plot twist to it. Yeah. Very excited if that comes off in a realistic manner. And I just want to say, I couldn't get over, you know, I've heard him on other interviews talk about it. I talked to him one-on-one -on -one about it. He's so at peace. You know, he should go into the UFC Hall of Fame, right? Mm -hmm. the, there's no doubt about this. Next year, it's the 25th 25-year anniversary of the logo of now, 25. 25. And for him not to go in would be a crime against humanity. But you know what? I truly believe when he says it, he, he just he's at peace with it. But he's a straight he, shooter. He, he doesn't lie about anything. I mean, no, he, he, everything is exactly the way he says it. So for me, you know, as a as a historian of the UFC, as a fan of his book, as a fan of the man Art Davey, hey UFC, get your shit together and put him in the Hall of Fame next year. All right, so we can't thank our sponsors enough. Human Weapon, uh, Sisu Mouthguard. Uh, we cannot thank Art Davey enough for coming on the show. We cannot thank Flow Combat enough for being our partner in crime. And we cannot thank you, the fans, enough. You can follow us on Twitter at Top Turtle MMA. You can email the show with love or hate mail, MMA at gmail.com. I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby Vreeland. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on flowcombat.com, and we'll be back next week.